Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Dr. Jana, is this episode 45 of the Science Sex Podcast? It is indeed. How do we get here? <laughs> I don't know. We just keep doing it. And one at a time, it adds up to 45. Yep, that's how it happens. And we have a special guest today on the show, we right? We do. We do. We are deviating a little bit from our usual type of guest. Oh, we're deviants. <laughs> well, I really like deviant behavior. Yes, so I do. You, do. <laughs> you know how it is. So it was time to bring some of that deviancy to the podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> yes, we have, instead of a academic researcher, we're bringing someone who is a feminist cultural critic and writer. In fact, she's a number one New York Times bestselling author, but she's not a researcher herself, though she interviewed a lot of researchers for her new book called Untrue. So by proxy, she's a researcher <laughs> because she spoke to so many. It's like me. I could call myself a researcher now because I've interviewed so many sex almost, researchers. Almost. Almost. Yeah, okay. You're almost yeah. there, Joe. I didn't write a book or anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you write a book about the podcast and all the stuff that you learned... Oof. While interviewing all these researchers, I yeah. think we might have you on the podcast. I don't know if I have time to do that, but I'll, I'll work on that, Dr. Jana. <laughs> anyway, so we have on the show Wednesday Martin. And she, like you mentioned, uh, big number one bestseller, Primates of Park Avenue. Got a lot of buzz here. Exactly. I think they're turning it into a TV show or movie, so... She's it hot. should be. She's hot. She is a hot item indeed. All right, so that's cool. So we got Wednesday Martin coming up. But first, we must thank our sponsor, Adam and Eve. Get to AdamandEve.com for a limited time, and you can get 50% off just about any item. And when you select one item at 50% off, you'll receive three free adult DVDs plus a free mystery gift. Mm-hmm. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. And they have pretty much everything that you can possibly imagine when it comes to sex toys and sex accessories and whatnot. So from last time, I was asking you, what have you ordered thus far? And you've never ordered anything. I'm not ordered So anything. what would be your first item if you were to order something from Adam and Eve what would it be? You know, Dr. Jean, I was actually on the site and I looked at Beginner's Bondage Fantasy. Mm. It's only twenty four ninety five, and it, it's the bondage kit that turns your kinky fantasies into reality. Is that is that something that it's time for you and your partner to explore? I mean, after 20 years of monogamy, you do want to bring in novelty. And we've talked about that, yeah. right? We've talked about bringing novelty. And so if this is something you haven't yet explored, it might be something worth exploring. Although one thing we have discussed mm-hmm. before is that we should probably discuss with our partner before ordering the said Beginner's Bondage Fantasy Kit. Absolutely, okay. indeed. So have you talked to her yet? No, so no? let me talk to her. Okay. And then <laughs> I will go to adamandeve.com and use the code SCIENCE Oh, yeah, that's, that's critical. Yes. You have to use the code SCIENCE. SCIENCE, S-C-I-E-N-C-E at adamandeve.com. Use that code SCIENCE at adamandeve.com to get 50% off just about any item. Now, Dr. Jana, please tell us about today's guest. With pleasure. Dr. Wednesday Martin earned her doctorate in comparative literature and cultural studies with a focus on anthropology from Yale University. But she is mostly known as a feminist cultural critic and number one New York Times bestselling author because her book, Step Monster, A New Look at Why Real Stepmothers Think, Feel, and Act the Way They Do, was a finalist for a prestigious book for a Better Life Award. And the New York Times book review called her memoir, Primates of Park Avenue, brilliant. Now she has a new book out. It's called Untrue, Why Nearly Everything We Believe About 
women, lust, and adultery is wrong and how the new science can set us free, which The Atlantic calls revolutionary and predicts it may well set off nuclear bombs in bedrooms and boardrooms. You can learn more about Wednesday Martin on her website, wednesdaymartin.com, or follow her on Instagram, wednesdaymartinphd, or on Twitter, wednesdaymartin. And we're so happy to have Dr. Wednesday Martin here with us in the studio today. So, Dr. Wednesday Martin, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, tell us a little bit about about you and your your development as a writer and a critic. You have a PhD from Yale in in comparative literature and and cultural studies. Cultural studies. Mm-hmm. And then, but you've been writing books pretty much for right. a bunch I, of years. Yeah, I call myself a recovering academic. <laughs> um, I got my doctorate in Complet and Cultural Studies. You're right. I wasn't cut out to be an academic, so <laughs> it didn't take long for me to start doing more popular writing. And I found it a really interesting, fun challenge to cross um, maybe what seemed like academic ideas over into popular culture. I wrote for magazines like Cosmo and Glamour for a long time. I wrote for the New York Post for a while. Writing for women's magazines was interesting. And so that kind of brought me to the place of getting book contracts, which is, you know, a longer haul assignment. Mm. And, um, you know, that's something that writers sometimes aspire to. So that's what landed me here. And I've always done the same thing with my writing, um, whether it's my book on Marlena Dietrich or my book about stepmothers or my book about rich mommies on the Upper East Side or this book on true about female infidelity. I've just always used anthropology to help decode why women do what they do and why we feel so angry and resentful of certain women. So, you know, whether it's mm. stepmothers or rich mommies or women who commit infidelity. I always how dare, they? Yeah, how dare they? I always <laughs> want to look at the women our culture loves to hate. They're, mm-hmm. they're so rich. They give you so much. Oh, yeah. They are a fascinating demographic to they, study. Yeah, they are. And I think they really teach us. I mean, when I when I study these women who are really controversial and triggering to people, I think I'm learning more about us as a culture and why they set us off, learning as much about that as about the women themselves, which is part of what you do as an anthropologist. Yeah, and there are lessons in there for everybody. Yeah, what is it about powerful women? Because I th- there are some who find it super attractive that there's a powerful woman, and then there's the the polar opposite of it. What if There's like almost no happy medium. People either love a powerful woman or <laughs> despise a powerful woman. It's so weird. I'm not sure exactly how to answer that. It's such a big question, and it's such a great question, and it's sort of the question at the heart of a lot of my work. <laughs> I do know that, you know, the lesson from anthropology is that anywhere in the world, any culture you look at, if there are high rates of women participating politically, high rates of female political leadership, and high rates of female labor force participation, um, you generally see that there's more female autonomy in general, mm-hmm. including sexual autonomy, and more tolerance for it. Um, so, yeah, we live in a nation where we've been sold such a bill of goods. We've been told for a long time that this is a great place to be a woman, um, that, you know, we're free, that we're equal. Um, but when you look at our rates of labor force and p- political participation for women in the U.S., it's super dismal. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the women who trigger us the most of all in this country are probably women who refuse monogamy. And women, who, and women who run for president. <laughs> and look, when you look at those women who really perhaps most symbolize being unapologetic about being autonomous, you know, 
women who cheat or are openly non-monogamous and and women who run for high political office. You see how we really feel about female autonomy in this country. We do not like Like it. it. No. Mm -mm. So we have far to go in this country. It is threatening to the order that exists already. Right. And I think that's what really drew me to female infidelity as a topic, you know, in different species and different cultures, including here. I had this hunch that women who refuse to be sexually exclusive, whether they do it openly or on the DL, I felt like they were just, they really were balls out, if you will, (laughs) about independence. And they were not just violating a social script, because they are violating a social script that like monogamy is good and it's healthy and it's the indication of stability and maturity. So they're bucking that social script. But, you know, they're also, these women who refuse sexual exclusivity are bucking a gender script as well, mm-hmm. which holds that women are less sexual, that, you know, monogamy is easier for us. Um, so they were such double renegades and <laughs> double badasses in that way that I really wanted to dig in and see what they were up to, how it felt to be them, how we feel about them what they can tell us, you know, about the sort of deep evolutionary backstory of female sexuality and and whether they could tell us where female sexuality is headed. I'm so curious to hear about all of these things. But before we go into the meat of your findings, tell us a little bit about your process of writing this book or collecting all the data and information about this book. So you interviewed researchers, Mm -hmm. you interviewed women who Mm -hmm. are sort of these double uh, renegades. Double renegades. Yeah. <laughs> you did some immersive stuff, going to different places to observe right. people. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I write all my books the same way. I'm really just like pretty formulaic in my approach. <laughs> I First I do what a lot of people probably consider boring, but those of us in this room right here right now <laughs> probably love. I dig into the research. So for this I looked at the psychological literature the literature from sociology, from primatology and anthropology about female sexual infidelity. In anthropology and primatology, call it female promiscuity. Mm. And they claim that that's not a loaded term, that they're just describing, you know, serial consortship. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, I look at all that data first. And then, of course, understandably, I think I need some experts to help me with it. So I go to them. So what was really great and untrue, which I sometimes describe as a valentine to the mostly female researchers I worked with, I got to interview 30 experts. Some of them were primatologists, Some were sociologists, some were anthropologists, some were shrinks, couples therapists, lifestyle activists, (laughs) and um, advocates for polyamory. So 30 people, mostly women, you know, I sat down with them. I asked them to describe to me, you know, what's the current state of play and the cutting-edge thinking about female sexuality and then, of course, I always said, and what about female infidelity? Tell me about that. Um, So That's always fun. You know, the zoologists will talk to you about hyena sex, and the psychologists will talk to you about human couples, gay, straight, across the spectrum. It's fun to talk to the experts, but I live to talk to the women themselves, which is what I always do. I spoke. The female hyenas? Yeah, (laughs) I love talking to those female hyenas. They have a lot to say. So I spoke to 30 women, actually, not hyenas. (laughs) And they were between the ages of 20 and 93. And they all, you know, talk to me about either their experiences with most of them or their thinking about 
female infidelity. Um, and that's always really fun, just the storytelling of it and how counterintuitive it can be, um, you know, that some of the women who told me about not being monogamous um, were doing it on the DL, and some of them you know, felt really guilty. Um, but some of them were just really kind of forthright, and they were just almost really relieved seeming to have somebody to talk to about it. And some of them were just very unapologetic and kind of narrated these experiences as, you know, real highlights of their life. So that was fascinating to see. And, yeah, I do like the immersive stuff. Um, Anthropology, um, the MO of anthropology is something called participant observation. It means that you go to a culture and you watch and participate uh, and that that's the way, you know, you learn the cultural logic. So I did that at a, an all-women's sex party called Skirt Club that you might be familiar with, your listeners might be familiar with. Um, uh, this guy's not. Uh, uh, what, uh, is, what is a skirt party? Okay, so Skirt Club is an all-women's play party. It's a roving members-only party that happens about once a month. Skirt Club was founded by a woman who goes by the name Genevieve Lejeune. Because she got tired of going to sex parties where she felt like her bisexuality was being leveraged by the men at the party or she just didn't feel that she uh, was able to do what she wanted. So she founded Skirt Club, which is only for women. Most of the women who go rate themselves as a two on the Kinsey scale. So, you know, closer to exclusively heterosexual than to exclusively homosexual, which is the Kinsey rating scale. Basically, the, the, the whole book is in some ways a myth-busting book around some of the gendered behaviors that we see and desires and mm-hmm. patterns of behavior, right, between men and women. You're right. It is a book of myth-busting. That's one way to describe it. And it's also a valentine. It's a valentine mm-hmm. to the female researchers who are doing mm-hmm. exactly what you describe. They're challenging these really entrenched narratives and ideas and bad science that's prevailed. I mean, I, I really think we're in our current cultural crisis because of bad science, right? The bad science that told us that men are naturally more sexual than women. It's natural that they might sexually coerce women. Men are more naturally violent than women. You find that these strains of thinking intersect with each other. And what's really cool is in the last few decades, uh, women, whether they're field scientists or lab researchers, uh, have entered these different disciplines, and they've brought some new forms of curiosity and compassion and identification. So, like, for example, you know, if you're a female primatologist, you might be really interested in, like, what's motivating a female macaque to mate rather than just focusing on, like, what's the male macaque doing? <laughs> That's a monkey. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Um, so in that way, in every field from primatology to sex research to sociology, as women entered these fields in the last couple decades, they started to pressure the dominant cultural narrative. I think the biggest things um, that you're probably already aware of because of the research that you do yourself, but I think the things that will be most surprising to a lot of people are, first of all, the finding that uh, sexual desire is not monolithic, there's not one desire style. And that when we break them apart, as Rosemary Bassin did, and we measure not just spontaneous desire, but also triggered and responsive desire, um, we see that men and women really 
have pretty matched libidos. That's challenging this thing that went on for so long in sex research and popular culture. We just thought forever, like, you know, men are horny dogs <laughs> and women are domestic hearth keepers because we can get pregnant. And so that's the way it is always and forever everywhere. And Rosemary Basson and some female sex researchers said, hold up. <laughs> Actually, our libidos are pretty matched. So, you know, there there went that really comforting, weird presumption. So you're talking about the the view that um, women's it's sex drives are sort of less strong. Or lesser less than, <coughs> lesser than, uh, yeah, that men are more sexual than women, that women need sex less, want sex less. And along with that, um, you know, this idea uh, that monogamy is easier for women somehow uh, than it is for men. So that's more about sexual no- novelty. So, so let me, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. I'm going to Go sort ahead. of challenge the view that there are no gender differences in, in this regard. You're talking about spontaneous versus responsive desire, which we have talked about on the podcast. With triggered desire, yeah. Triggered desire, right? Mm-hmm. With spontaneous being just the sort of I thought about sex or, or horniness that just kind of... comes over you like a hunger, right? right? Just an appetite. As opposed to the responsive desire, which may be which is triggered by some something already sexual happening when you are somewhat right. open to something sexual happening. Now, you're right that responsive desire does seem to be pretty similar among men and women, their ability to become aroused and then and then uh, desire sex in, in that context of something sexual already happening. But there is pretty robust research that whenever we look at spontaneous desire, men always report more thoughts about sex, more frequent thoughts about sex. That's if you only measure spontaneous desire. Right, right, on on the spontaneous side. And that, yeah, so that's not a comprehensive measure, right? Right, but if you have responsive desire being similar Mm -hmm. between men and women, whereas spontaneous desire being higher in men than women, then you still have on average higher overall right desire and, and libido, if you will. I think the strength of the comparative method is that you don't, throw everything into one discipline. I would never, I don't think, you know, I would be comfortable making a statement like that based just on sex research. I would turn to the literature on primatology as well to sort of cross-check, which Mm -hmm. is what I do in all my books. All my books are interdisciplinary. And I would turn to the anthropology literature um, because, you know, it's going to vary so much from culture to culture. So, if we just focus on the measures of desire, whether they're spontaneous, triggered, uh, responsive, then it's good to cross-check. So that's what I did in the book. And I would say that, you know, when we do that, these experts are making a convincing argument that overall our heritage and our current state of play is that it's really hard to assert that men are more desirous of sex than women or that they have stronger sexual desires. From one, and pardon me for saying it, but from one kind of narrow discursive perspective, I mean, I have read consistently that men have more spontaneous desire mm-hmm. than women do. Um, but then when you cross-check it, I don't think that we can be comfortable in that assumption at all. Even though we do find this across pretty much all human cultures, the spontane- spontaneous desire gender difference? We don't. We don't. And we would be idiots, honestly, to go to, like, studying it, it like, semi-nomadic pastoralists in Namibia and presume that we could impose this grid of spontaneous versus um, triggered or responsive desire across different cultures. We can't. We have to take 
uh, cultures and their narratives about sexuality as they are. And if we, you know, have a preconception of it, it'll distort the lens through which we view the actual sexual behaviors that we see on the ground and the social behaviors. So I think that the lesson of the comparative method and my personal perspective would be not just that it's hard to generalize, but that ecology really, really matters. So in this one ecology, the industrialized West, through the discourse of sex research, is it meaningful that men have more spontaneous desire than women do? Sure. But that still doesn't mean that we can generalize that men, even here, have more sexual desire than women do. And the cross-cultural lessons and the lessons across species have a lot to tell us, too. Mm. Okay. <laughs> it, it just seems to me that there are two ways to portray some of these gender differences. And very often one becomes confused with the other one. So one one stereotype or myth or belief uh, that we have is that when people say, you know, women are less sexual than men and you can throw in pretty much anything there, have mm. lower sex drives, have less need for sexual novelty or, or multiple partners or non-monogamy, they cheat because of of emotional reasons and not sexual reasons and all of these things that right that have to do with with our sexual desires and all that. So one way of, of presenting the the gender difference is and the way people understand it when we say women are less sexual than men in any of these ways is that all women are less sexual in these ways than all men that there's basically this complete in the either aggregate. Uh -huh. the, no no but like there is this complete either or approach. Mm. The other way of understanding this gender difference is that in on average, there is a difference that because everything is a normal distribution to some extent with some people being very low on these things and some people being very high on these things, that the gender difference means that these distributions are, are just slightly shifted toward higher or lower end, but that there's still plenty of women who are, say, higher on sex drive than plenty men, and there are plenty men who are lower in sex drive than, than many women, right? And so I think what the research is showing and, and books like, like, like yours, like Untrue, is arguing for and making a really, really good argument for is that it's not an either or, that there is quite a bit of variability in terms of both women's sexuality and men's sexuality, and that there are plenty, plenty, plenty women out there who are pretty high on this. But I'm less convinced that the research supports that there are absolutely no average differences. Well, you should read my book. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone who works in sex research should be talking to primatologists, sociologists, and you all need to be talking across disciplines, I think. Um, You're right. We don't yeah, do that enough. There's not enough of that. I interviewed a very well-respected sex researcher, and she was saying, you know, we have good reason to believe that men do have stronger sex drives than women do. You know, there are biological underpinnings to that, and that, you know, monogamy is more difficult for men. She's, and I said, I asked her if she had read a few um, primate studies. There's a big shift. I asked her if she knew about Patricia Gawadi's work at UCLA, her attempt to replicate Angus Bateman studies with fruit flies. Angus Bateman is the British geneticist who found in 1948 that female fruit flies don't benefit from mating multiply, but male fruit flies do. And from this, we kind of presumed all kinds of neat gender-based differences in sexual behavior, that it would be great for guys of all species to spread their seed and that it didn't benefit females of all species. So this really cool 
biologist at UCLA she, uh, named Patricia Gowady decided in either 2012 or 2013 to revisit the research, the fruit fly research. She went back to Bateman's study, on which we had based a lot of science and assumptions. And uh, she went back and revisited it, and she found that she couldn't replicate it. And then, you know, with DNA sequencing that we have now, she found that Bateman, not only could she not replicate it, but that Bateman's study was wrong, um, and that females did benefit from multiple mating. And males didn't. So I asked the sex researcher, you know, do you know about this? And the sex researcher was just kind of like stunned and said, well, nobody has convincingly made that argument to me. And I said, well, nobody's supposed to. (laughs) You're supposed to be looking across disciplines and not presuming that this one lens, sex research, is going to tell you the whole story. And I'm really at great pains to note in my book, as most people who do anthropology are, that... um, you know, female sexuality, of course, happens at the confluence of the clitoris and culture. There are so many ecological variations. But the overarching story is that, to your point, humans evolved as extremely flexible social and sexual strategists. Homo sapiens is here, and Homo ergaster is not, and Australopithecus afarensis is not, because we had these really flexible and unique breeding strategies, and we could do it one way here and another way here. Mm-hmm. You know, that's our evolutionary legacy. So the lesson of anthropology is that there is variation everywhere, and that female sexuality, like male sexuality, is going to vary a lot with ecological circumstances. Yeah, so, so glad you're pointing this out because I think there's a misconception around what the standard evolutionary narrative suggests. It is portrayed almost always as suggesting that, say, women are less sexual in all of these different ways than men because there's some kind of inborn biological difference that makes it so forever and ever and that's just the reality of the situation because across all cultures and all ecologies and all social circumstances, it was more beneficial to men than to women to want all of these sexual things. But that's not what the standard evolutionary narrative suggests. The evolutionary narrative is that what you were just saying, that if that uh, humans are an adaptable species and they will create strategies that are most efficient, they're most reproductively successful in that particular ecology. And that they can, right? It's That that we can. And so if you change an ecology to have different circumstances, then things will change. Now, these things do get encoded into our biological genetics and and epigenetics and what gets expressed and what doesn't get expressed. But absolutely, if you create... So some of those factors that, that lead to women being less likely to cheat or less likely to have multiple partners or less likely to even desire sex or or want to have some of these things are going to be very much linked to what is the ecology they live in. Are they economically dependent on men or not? Do they have independent power uh, for political and social and economic success, right? Does the survival of their children depend on these things or can they do it themselves without social ostracism, without economic costs to pay? Right. And that's what you're finding. That's what all of these primatology studies and, and anthropological studies are finding, that depending on the context. The container is really important. There is no doubt that ecology plays a huge role. And that's why the Himba women that my friend Brooke Skelza, the anthropologist, studies do not have to apologize at all for having the highest rate of extra pair paternity of any small scale culture in the world. Right. 
uh, something like one in three babies born to a married himbo woman is from a guy who's not her husband, and nobody says anything about it or thinks about it. Why? Why would that be? It has everything to do with ecology, right? The himba are not patrilineal. Where are these himba women? <laughs> oh, sorry, they're in yeah. northern Namibia. Okay. They're the last semi-nomadic Are you, are you moving there, Joe? It sounds region. like a fun place. <laughs> it's a super fun place. Um, so they're the last semi-nomadic pastoralists uh, living in this area. It's the border between Namibia and Angola. So are they away from the rest of society? Are they living in their mm-hmm. own? They live pretty independently, although they you know, go to grocery stores. Some of them send their children to schools. Even they interact with tourists. Uh, but they're very proud about their traditional way of life, which makes them really interesting to study. Uh, so Brooks Skells is, you know, wanted to drill down why why is female infidelity so common here and why is it so tolerated and it all came down to ecology um talk to us about some of those factors yeah so for example you know they're as semi-nomadic pastoralists their lives are about cows wait you the said men, that really quickly what are they again semi-nomadic, they're semi-nomadic pastoralists it right. means that they travel they have cows and goats and sheep okay and they travel based on grazing conditions and they set up camps in between oh so they're mm-hmm. never in one city or in, like they're, they're always moving around they're in an encampment a okay. lot of times encampments of like maybe you know from 20 to 50 people okay. on average i believe um, but they're not always there but they leave sometimes so what are the ecological circumstances that make it so easy to tolerate and get away with female infidelity and to just be what we would consider super brazen about it the first thing is that the guys go off to the cattle station for long periods of time and they often have a girlfriend there or maybe even more than one girlfriend at the cattle station and um, the women stay behind so there's this physical uh, fact of separation that plays into it so that's part of the ecology right the fact Mm -hmm. of physical separation another thing that comes into play is that the himba are not patrilineal in their descent that means that we pass things along generally through the patriline, through the father. We really care to make sure that the dad is going to pass his right, stuff senior, along junior, to, yeah, yeah, yeah name, the, the, name, the whole deal yeah. is set Mon- up that money, way. The, whatever. The himba don't are. do things that way. A himba man passes his cows along not to his wife's kids, but to his sister's kids. So he doesn't have to worry. Oh my God, what if I give my cows to that kid and it's not my kid? His cows are going to his sister's kids. He doesn't need to worry about it. Here's <laughs> another thing in himba ecology that makes it easy for women to get away with infidelity and having kids by men who aren't their husbands when they're married, uh, which is that even though himba women leave their families usually to live with their husbands, their kin is usually pretty close by. And himba guys have a, a couple wives, few wives maybe. So when she has a baby... She can leave her other kids with their husband and her husband's other wives, and she can travel and go and see her family. And that's a common himba practice. And that practice 
whether you're visiting with a new baby or just by yourself, but that practice of the women constantly going back to their kin network reinforces those connections and gives her a natural power base um, so that if she decided she wanted to leave her husband, she could vote with her feet and do it. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's another factor. Having a really strong kin mm -hmm. base is often predictive of women having a lot Mm -hmm. of sexual autonomy. Um, Another really cool thing that happens among the Himba is that when a woman has a baby, if it's an Amoka child, Amoka means um, a child by the guy who's not your husband. Um, And how would they know that? They know because they know when they menstruate and they count back to the day of ovulation. And they have there's an app for that. Dr. There's John. an app for that, <laughs> but they don't use. <laughs> They're pretty good at figuring it out. Oh, okay. Brooke Skelza realized. So when she has this baby by a man who's not to whom she's not married, the father of the baby will start provisioning the baby right away. He'll start bringing food. So it starts to seem like kind of a good deal for this guy. I'm off at the cattle station doing my thing. She's here. If I try to mess with her, she has this strong kin network, and people will not let me be too controlling. Uh, And this guy's feeding the kid. Meanwhile, the kid gets older. Hamba children, starting at age about three or four, they start offsetting their costs, their household costs. Providing for the family. Yeah, so they start doing chores. They start helping with herding. They start doing all this Really, truly helpful stuff. So at they, four? Yep, at three or four. They start Jeez. offsetting the There's a lot the kids co- can yeah. do. We There's treat them as completely <laughs> incapable There's of doing anything. There's a lot they can but, do. Mm-hmm. And the Hamba kids do that, and the guys look at the situation and say, not only is this kid not costing me anything, the opposite of kids in the U.S. Mm-hmm. who are super costly, mm-hmm. this kid is like addition to the economy and the family. So that starts going on, and that's um, another reason. And then finally, when this guy's at the cattle station, what happens if there's a drought? What happens if his wife gets sick? What happens if his own child falls ill? Uh, This extra guy uh, can take her to the clinic, can provision her kids, can help her get water. All in all, suddenly it starts to look like a really good deal to tolerate your wife's infidelity. Mm -hmm. All right. That's just one example Example, of how ecology forms a really important Mm -hmm. container that sexuality happens in both male and female sexuality. And I think it's a great example because you do cover a lot of these Mm -hmm. factors that allow for that to happen, for that kind of tolerance that to happen in that culture. And it is the opposite of how things are in the industrialized West. Those are the exact factors yeah. that make women here in, in the West not act like That's the Himba right. women and the men yeah. in the West be if very, you, very yeah. intolerant. If you want to curtail female autonomy in a more profound way, you really only have to do a few things. The first thing you have to do is take a woman away from her kin network. That's a woman's natural power base. Our families might drive us crazy, but they're related to us, and our interests are their interests, and they will generally um, really support advocate and, mm-hmm. and support us. In the industrialized us, we really value privacy. If you're having a problem with your husband and you can't go to your family, it's going to be really hard to just go to a friend's house, right? So it really helps to have your family around. And also, we do have in the West these, I mean, nowadays, might be changing somewhat, but for many generations, this understanding that even your family wouldn't take you back because it's shameful or there's social stigma around leaving your husband because leaving your husband was not acceptable in so many cultures. So That's even right. they might push you away and back into this bad or abusive or whatever. And that would be rarer 
than if you went to somebody else. What would be statistically more likely to happen is they would likely support you, but it's true. A lot of ideologies of shame and that you're supposed to be with your husband and this is the most important relationship prevailed mm-hmm. to, to prevent women from doing even that. So the first thing to disempower women and take away their sexual autonomy is to take them away from their kin network, uh, which happens all the time in the industrialized West. We live neo-locally. We get married and we move away. The second thing is just don't let a woman work. Um, if you want to take away her power and sexual autonomy, keep her just at don't home. let her work. Keep her at home. And you don't have to be some antediluvian guy who says, my woman's not going to work. You just have to live in an ecology where there's like an ideology maybe of intensive motherhood that holds that like if you really want to be a good mother, you really should stay home and you really should enrich your child's life. 24-7, you're or, a mom. Yeah, or yeah. you just have to build an ecology in which um, men earn more on the dollar than women do or only 4% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are men. Okay, mm, sounds so, now you've, yeah. made, sounds now, yeah. to so now you've made it really, you know, not really in women's best interest to not only have you taken away her ability maybe to earn as much, but you've made it really not in her best interest when she runs the calculus. She's like, oh, I should probably stay home with the kids. Um, so those are really the mm-hmm. two most basic things that you have to do. Just take a woman away from her kid network, take away her ability to work. And now the third thing comes in. She has a child. She has dependent offspring. Now it's not just her dependent on a man in the heterosexual diet. It's her and her children. So we've articulated this new weird thing where women in our culture are uniquely dependent on men. Through the lens of anthropology, this is a really weird new situation. Only for 2 to 3% of Homo sapiens' entire collective mm-hmm. life history have women been dependent on men and had their autonomy and sexual autonomy curtailed. But it has been really effective. So mm. that to our point about ecology and female sexuality going in tandem, hand in hand. Absolutely. And, you know, back to the point about Skirt Club, one of the really fascinating things about Skirt Club is that it is sort of a constraint-free environment, a kind of neutral zone, arguably, built within a larger culture where women are relatively free of the kind of constraints um, that we just mentioned, and they can kind of push the eject button Hmm. on those strategies that have... um, controlled their sexuality. Talk to us about how infidelity gives us an example or changes that we've seen in the patterns of infidelity over the last however many decades since things have been changing in the West to some extent and how this this plays into some of these kind of beliefs about the differences between men and women and how they're changing. If you look at data from the 90s and more recently, Some people make the case that female infidelity has increased. Um, There was a popular statistic that got started getting bandied around um, in 2013 that emerged from NORC data. NORC is just the National Opinion Resource Center, and they administer every two years a big social survey called the General Social Survey, which um, asks Americans about their attitudes, about a lot of social behaviors, including sexual behaviors, right? In 2013, we've talked about the yeah, GSS yeah. many times mm-hmm. in the podcast. Yeah, and 20. So in 2013, this information emerged and got big play that women were about 40 percent more likely to cheat than they had been in previous decades. However, there's also data that shows men and women cheating—a term we hate, I know—at equal rates throughout the 90s. What would happen, you know, if we had had reliable instruments? and had had ways to ask questions, to pose questions that 
accounted for asymmetrical stigma and accounted for the fact that women were like, you know, likely to feel more compelled to answer dishonestly. So you think we that those, that all those studies finding that women, at least in the past, were cheating less frequently than men is due to them not being honest on surveys or due to the fact that all that stigma that existed much more say 20 years ago than it does today was actually making women less likely to do it even though they might have wanted to do it it could be both yeah mm-hmm. we don't know and we also talk um, about this but, before about opportunity too because now you have more women well, working and caretakers that, yeah this yeah. is something some people believe i'm not entirely convinced by the sociological argument that women have more opportunities now or and that so the rates are greater some people say the rates have really been very similar hmm across time but it is really uh compelling you know when you when you factor in how much ecology matters it, it does make sense to say well look suddenly you're making more money and suddenly getting caught is like less seems like less of a catastrophe and maybe mm-hmm. it's a worth like it's a worthy risk maybe it's something you're running this uh you're doing these life history trade-offs as we call them in anthropology you're kind of running the calculus I don't know. I make a good salary. Like, I, if, if I got caught, what would really happen? Uh, the other thing is that people say that with more women in the workforce, they just straight up, to your point, have more opportunities, right? We and, travel more. Yeah, we, have, we know that we business around. travel is mm-hmm. a time when people tend to um, have extra pair sexual mm-hmm. experiences. Um, so business travel, just being in the workforce and having your own resources. I mean, the worldwide ethnographic data is really clear. Women cheat, if you want to call that, or have multiple partners when they can. And one of the circumstances that allows them to is that they have resources, they have a strong kin network, right. and they can vote with their feet if they want and to. And the new thing that we have very recently, very effective birth control. So if you're yes. worried about making babies with the wrong person, <laughs> you can easily prevent that. That's so, right. so that's huge. And I would be, I mean, honestly, I, I know that some people are saying, you know, rates of infidelity have been similar across many times, but I would find that very unlikely given, like, I would be very surprised if all of these factors that you just mentioned did not make more women cheat. Like, that would make absolutely no sense. Birth control is a really big, interesting issue, and a lot of anthropologists like to go to natural fertility populations where they don't have birth control to see if they can approximate some kind of Pleistocene, what was our evolutionary prehistory practice, which is hard to do across different environments. Um, But one thing that we do see is that in traditional hunter-gatherer populations, women have a lot more autonomy in general and a lot more sexual autonomy, and they are um, cheating, if you want to call it that, at rates equal uh, to men. But then you have the, it's not as costly if you do end up with somebody else's child, right? Whereas in this culture, it would have been very costly if you did get caught. Therefore, the birth control piece is really important in this ecology. Well, of course, it's important not to end up pregnant in an ecology where that's going to be a real real risk and where progeniture um, is an issue. I think, right, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that this is indeed the case, that the, these ecological and social factors, environmental factors, both the physical environment, as you're talking, what kind of food resources are there in the environment? How easily accessible are they? And then the social structures that support the different cultures and that that's going to influence how sexual women are in different ways or females mm-hmm. of whatever species. But when you look at human cultures, the vast majority of human cultures over the last you know few thousand years, at least, have had the ecological factors play against 
female empowerment. I mean, in the industrialized West, anywhere there was plow agriculture, but that's not everywhere. And that's... But the vast majority of humans on this planet, since the plow has been invented, lived in these cultures, right? So what what kind of... For only 12,000 years. I mean, which to me is like yesterday. You know, (laughs) I look through a weird lens, but it's true what you say, but it's only been for two or maybe 3% of like I said, the human of, of hu- the human history. experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, that we've lived in these weird, unique, very new circumstances. I think that really the lesson that anthropology teaches us and primatology too, is that inequality between men and women and female sexual autonomy and autonomy being circumscribed more generally, women's autonomy being circumscribed, is a very recent aberration in the really long human calendar. And we're slowly taking it back. We um, We are stripping it away. We really... um, We're going to have to wait 12,000 years, though, right? (laughs) I don't know. We have the midterm elections coming up. I don't know when this is running, but let's let's see um, what we can do. It will run before the election. So, yes, please go and vote. Please go and vote. Please go and vote. Yeah, please go and vote. And I think that one of the real dangers is... And I... You know, I find this one of the things I really don't like about evolutionary psychology is this idea that our current circumstances are really instructive about the way things have always been. Um, but I don't think that's the case. With I think that's a misconception in how EvoPsych is presented because, in essence, EvoPsych doesn't say that. EvoPsych says things are going to be the way they are as long as there are factors making that way the most reproductively successful. You change the circumstances, you change these ecological factors in what makes most sense, reproductively speaking, and you're going to change these patterns and these behaviors. I don't think EvoPsych and all of the stuff that that you've been talking about are in contrast with one another. They're only in contrast with one another if you take commonly presented, but essentially not true, not accurate presentation of what EvoPsych says. I stand by that there has been a lot of evolutionary psychology that has essentialized differences about gender and about sexuality. I give um, you that for sure. But, I think for a sure, lot of... And also in other fields, you know, it's it's not unique in that. For a long time, we believed in the man, the hunter hypothesis in anthropology, right? We just thought, well, in the 50s and the 60s, we like lived in houses and the guy went off and worked hmm. and brought food back. So yeah, we must. it must have been that like, Cavemen. Like that forever, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that we lived in this dyad and the caveman went off and hunted for the woman and the baby. And, of course, now we know it's not even a hypothesis anymore that we evolved as cooperative breeders and that this, too, is a weird aberration um, in the long human No, I, I agree. Um, I think that yeah, there was so definitely a lot of misrepresentation of what EvoPsych is from the EvoPsych people themselves. And so it's very easy doing, to... Yeah, <laughs> doing themselves in the discipline no favors. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, what we were talking about was that there's no reason to lose hope, that this is new, and that even when you look at the worldwide ethnographic data, it doesn't make sense to say that it's natural for women to be disempowered relative to men. It doesn't prevail in all circumstances. It is not in every culture that men look for signs of youth and fecundity in women and that women look for men to be rich. It's well, they will do that if they can be rich themselves. That's but exa- if they can exactly. be rich themselves, then that becomes less so, important. Uh, yeah, exactly. So all these narratives um, in which we kind of projected 
across different cultures what we had here or projected back through time what we have in this specific moment uh, have all formed our concept of female sexuality mm-hmm. and our aversion and fear of female sexual mm-hmm. autonomy. And so that's really one of the big messages of my book. Let's end this on that note of give us a little bit about the perspective and the experiences of these women who are, especially the ones who are unapologetically bucking mm-hmm. these these uh, norms and trends that have been set for them at least for the last 12,000 years in the West and saying enough is enough sort of F you, we're going we're gonna to live a different life that suits our sexuality more? Um, I think some of the more interesting conversations I had were with women who had opened up their relationships or who were openly polyamorous or involved in the poly community. Um, that was really fascinating. A lot of experts told me that the people who came to them, if they're therapists saying, I want to I want to change the parameters and rules of this relationship. We're not men, but women. I mean, that women were driving um, a lot of these changes on a micro level in individual relationships, but also on a macro level. You know, women are very into the polyamory movement. And a lot of experts told me, if you look at consensual non-monogamy and polyamory, you'll see a lot of women kind of at the the helm, Mm -hmm. leading the way, which is a kind of counterintuitive finding for people who are invested in this idea that, you know, men want to spread their seed and roam and wander and have adventures. Um, I think one of the lessons that these women teach us is that um, female sexual adventure is a big part of the story of human sexuality. And that's one of the reasons um, I think that female sexual entitlement strikes us as, as so threatening. You know, I think there is an understanding on some level that people have that women are every bit as sexually adventurous as men are when we remove constraint. So, yes, there are those poly women doing that um, or women who are driving their relationships in the direction of consensual non-monogamy. And I think those women are just right on script with our evolutionary heritage of female sexuality. They were really fun to talk to. A lot of the women who were stepping out on the DL were fun to talk to um, just because... Apart from everything the culture might think about them, I think that given the stigma they face and the very real threats of, like, lethal violence, right, in our country, most mass shootings that don't happen in schools are triggered by men who want to control female behavior. They want to control women who have left them. The social psychologist David Lay believes that most instances of domestic violence in this country are triggered not by female infidelity itself, but even just the suspicion of it. So it's, re- of yeah. mm-hmm. so it's really dangerous in this country uh, for women to refuse sexual exclusivity, whether they do it openly or uh, clandestinely. Um, in the face of that, I thought these women telling me their stories were very brave, whatever else we might think about them. And just the relish with which a lot of them narrated the stories was really fascinating to me. Pamela Druckerman writes about interviewing a group of women in the 1990s. I guess the, these women were in their 70s, maybe. And she talked. So they were kind of these like 60s housewives uh, who had lived in kind of um, wealthy suburbs. And Pamela Druckerman interviewed them. And she said, wow, these women were just saying like, 
that we had the time of our lives. Nobody cared. <laughs> we got married early, and then we had our sex mm-hmm. lives, right? Um, so I had a similar experience interviewing these women where they said, I'm getting sexual adventure, and I feel entitled to sexual pleasure, um, even though I'm married and sort of, you know, supposedly destined for sex with one man for the rest of my life. I'm making an end run around that. And a lot of them, after they got past giving maybe some lip service, which maybe they meant that they felt very guilty and and upset about it. At the same time, what was fascinating was the strain of really wanting to celebrate their bravery and all the benefits that they reaped from Mm -hmm. what you know, from non-monogamous sex. It's funny when you're mentioning the the older ladies uh, and their <laughs> lovers. <laughs> I recently found out that my grandmother on one of my uh, parents' side was married off at 15 and was married to the same person mm-hmm. oh. for her whole life. But apparently she had a whole list of lovers uh, right. during those very long years of marriage that, to this yeah, one person. That was, that was a reproductive <laughs> strategy and social mm-hmm. and sexual strategy yeah. that women lived for a long time. When mm-hmm. they were married off young, they would clandestinely have uh, adventure and um, pleasure in other ways. So is this genetic? Is that where Dr. Jana got it from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think so. I mean, the genetics definitely play a role because uh, aside from all of these general patterns that you have across cultures, then you still have genetic variability with some of us coming from the lines of, of people who were more sexual mm-hmm. within women, you know, so lines of women who are more sexual versus lines of mm-hmm. women who are less sexual. So there's that big individual variability, right? Yeah. And I think one of the most interesting things is I don't remember if I in the end got to this point before, but when I interviewed women who would think of themselves as early and very vocal second wave feminists, they say, I can't believe what a big deal you guys um, make, generations younger than them, mm-hmm. about monogamy. They get that the millennials are pressing against the container and don't like it, but they don't get why their own children are so hung up about monogamy and so monogamous in their relationships because they were part of the great second wave of feminism, which held that female sexual autonomy was a really important part of female autonomy. We have split female sexual autonomy off now. We don't like to talk about it, a lot of us, except for exceptional subcultures of people who are sex positive and who care about it. But mainstream feminism a lot of times um, wants to look the other way about compulsory monogamy as an issue and about female sexuality. We've gotten away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, is, there are these regressive, if you will, mm-hmm. strains of feminism that can be pretty mainstream. Uh-huh. And um, so... You know, that's a challenge before all of us, um, including feminists, to deal with female sexual autonomy and to not turn away from it and Mm -hmm. to look at it as a fundamental um, freedom. How Mm -hmm. autonomous are we if we don't have sexual autonomy and if we're really holding women to the standard of compulsory monogamy? I mean, it's interesting that we're thinking of all of these norms becoming more and more liberal and understanding and accepting, but the research from the GSS, the General Social Survey, are still finding that the vast majority of both men and women think of extramarital sex, so sex with somebody other than your spouse, is something that is always wrong. 91% mm -hmm. of them said that in 2013. Right. So how do you see this happening and how do we 
reconcile what we're doing, which is a lot yeah. of us are having extramarital partners, right. and yet everybody seems to think right. it's bad. The rates are something like for women, right? The GSS rate is about 13%. Um, but we have to suspect that it's very likely higher because of stigma about disclosing mm-hmm. and the way the question 13% is, of women who have currently cheated on their spouse. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's what the GSS um, found. But Of course, those numbers would be higher if you take for the rest of their lives. Are they going to cheat, right? Correct. Until the end if of that marriage. If it's a lifetime right. um, measure, it will tend mm-hmm. to be higher. higher. We know that Again, back to our point, somewhere between 80 and over 90% of Americans, when you ask them, will say that infidelity is always wrong or that it is morally wrong. Um, And at the same time, I find it really interesting that Amy Moores, um, the sex researcher, found that when she looked at Google and Internet searches for a 10-year period, um, I believe it was 2006 to 2015, she found that there had been this tremendous uptick in searches pertaining to terms like polyamory and open relationship and consensual mm-hmm. non-monogamy. Yeah, we had Amy Morris so on the say, podcast. Yeah, she's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it means that Americans say one thing. Maybe we're doing that thing that we say that we believe is the best thing, but we are undeniably very curious about our options. And if the container allows us to, if the ecology allows us to... Um, we're going to do it. <laughs> Who knows what it's going to like in 12,000 years from now. When we come Ooh. back. <laughs> oh, I wish I had a time machine to jump into Right, the follow-up show. See you guys in 12,000 years. Let's see where we are. I think something really interesting also is that um, there was a YouGov study in both the UK and the US, and they're weighted samples, which is pretty good, of over 1,600 um, adults in the UK sample. And they both found that the rates of cheating between men and women were statistically insignificant, 19% of women and 20% of men, which means that if you factor in stigma, women could, you can make a Cheat good more. argument that it's yeah. likely that they're, that they're doing it more. Yeah. And certainly even if you, if you take the perspective as far as cheating goes, that rates have or have changed in all of these cultural factors that have prevented women from committing infidelity uh, more than men in the past we are finding in the so if you accept the numbers in the difference in numbers between men and women back say 20 30 40 years now the new numbers especially among the younger generation are finding no differences or or very little difference and sometimes even more women 18 to 29 and two big representative samples were outpacing their male peers in infidelity um and i I think it's important to say that, you know, the reason that I chose to study female infidelity or women who refuse sexual exclusivity is just because they're the most triggering test case for us mm-hmm. of female autonomy. If you want to find a form Canary of... Canary in the coal mine. It, <laughs> yeah. It's like, how do we really feel about women who seize privileges that have historically belonged to men? We can say, oh, I really... Yeah, of course women should be able to run for political office. Oh, of course women should be paid what men mm-hmm. are paid. But then we're really pushing people's backs up against the wall when we say, and what about women who cheat? And that's when you will see a lot of gender bias. You know, women who are not 
sexually exclusive are one of the few tensional outlets for misogyny still and one of the few places where you really see ramped up anxiety mm, about and female anger. autonomy yeah. and anger. So and that's why they're so fascinating to me to study. And, and so think, timely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a good point to give a little public service, service announcement that I, I always like to talk about. If you are one of these sexually empowered, sexually autonomous women who are going against the grain and you have the luxury to be open about it, be open about it, talk about it, write about it, be that beacon of permission for other women because one of the things that really helps other people kind of live out their sexual autonomous lives the way they are most authentic to them is to have role models is is to see other women being able to live that lifestyle without without the horrible consequences that may have been true now of course not everybody has that luxury depending on what your personal family work mm-hmm. and all that situation is but many of us do have that luxury and so if we do have it well, it's bring like any it movement on. any civil rights movement the right, sexual exactly, right movement exactly. it's, it's all it's all I mean, part that's and parcel what, yeah the gay movement did that too right initially only the the gay men and women who could afford to come out they came out not everybody came out right, right. away and then that creates the, the the environment for the next round of people who are a little more risk creating to come an out. ideological shift right. yeah and this my book on true is really the main mission of this book was to give women permission um, if not to step out or be openly non-monogamous at least to feel permitted to feel less weird about their sexuality when they read all the data from multiple disciplines that explains to them why these things that they wanted that might, you know, seem unusual or off the map, um, that they aren't. I think permission is really important. And Mm -hmm. this is a book that seeks to empower women by giving them permission to be who they are sexually. Yay. Get untrue. Read it and go live free. (laughs) (laughs) Good messaging. Yes. Thank you so much for being in the Science of Sex podcast. Thanks for having me, both of you. I really enjoyed it. Dr. John, that was a fun talk with Dr. Wednesday Martin. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. But all good things come to an end, Dr. John, and that is the end of this week's Science of Sex. But we are coming back next week. Who we got next week on the show? Next week, we have Dr. Gerolf Rieger from the University of Essex, who's been doing a lot of research on twins, identical twins, who have different sexual orientations, right? We know that sexual orientation is partly genetic, right? and when you have identical twins, Mm. you expect them to be more likely than non-identical twins or other siblings in terms of whether they have the same sexual orientation. Is what If one person is gay, if one brother or sister is gay, then you expect the other person to be gay at higher rates than if you have you know, non-identical twins or siblings or certainly among sort of random people who are not related. Now, that is true. They are more likely to have the same uh, sexual orientation, but not all of them do. What Dr. Rieger has been studying is if you get these identical pairs of twins, one that is gay and one uh, that is not gay, Mm-hmm. or at least say so, okay. then he's been looking at all these other indicators of sexual orientation, like their genital arousal patterns. What are their genitals responding to if they say that they're gay versus not gay? What are their finger length ratios, which is one of the indicators of sexual orientation? And what about their gender nonconformity as kids? How you know typical boys or typical girls or non-typical girls they were as kids? So we're going to have him on to talk about the findings. So that's, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, when you brought the twins thing, I'm like, what? 
is it a study about having sex with twins? But this is no, definitely. It's a little deeper than that. <laughs> definitely not sex with twins. That's good. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, make sure you check out our website, sciencesexpodcast.com. There you can check out old episodes and you can also help and support the science of sex and Dr. Jana by becoming a monthly donor through Patreon. And of course, do not forget to rate and review. I just read this lovely review on the iTunes store, Dr. Yes. Jana. This came from Crisscross824. Such an interesting show. I've learned a lot and can't wait for each episode. This is the perfect mix of educational and sexy. Ooh, That's a real review it. on Thank iTunes. So make sure you uh, drop us a line, drop us some stars, let us know what you think of the show. And uh, you know we'll we'll take it. We take all criticism, good, bad, Absolutely. ugly, and different. What you, know? you don't like is as important as what you like. Yeah, I mean, I I prefer the more positive reviews. <laughs> well, but, sure, but yeah, but it's always room for improvement. Sure, there is, and, and so we'll try to improve for next time, right, Doctor Jana? Indeed. I right, see you next week. Bye. To connect with Doctor Jana and Joe, go to thescienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.